Let us pray. Father, we thank you for the opportunity to preach, to hear your word. We pray that you'd open our hearts to receive your truth today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I hope you have come along with us on our journey through Hosea. We're now in chapter 14, last chapter, and tonight we'll do a recap on the, the study in the book of Hosea. And today we see the Lord's holy desire for his people. And he starts right off with a bang. Return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. We've made a note that the word Lord is capitalized, each letter, capital L, capital O, capital R, and capital D. And that's in the English Bible that way because that was their way of conveying that this isn't just a Lord, this is Yahweh, Jehovah. That's the word in the Hebrew, Yahweh, Jehovah, Lord. And so when the Bible in the English uses that capital it, it is saying specific God, Yahweh, Jehovah God. And that's important because Hosea as a book is dealing with people who believe in God. In fact, more correctly, they believe in gods. We went out yesterday in evangelism and I run across people who believe in gods. One woman told me she believed in God, but she didn't believe in Jesus. I told her, you can't get to heaven without believing in Jesus. Because the God you believe in that doesn't know Jesus isn't God at all. It's this Yahweh, this Jehovah God, the creator of heaven and earth, the God of Israel... ...is the God that we trust. Not just any God... Israel was worshiping gods, little g with an S on the end, that the nations around them had worshiped and served. People today think you can just worship God in your own way. Come and go as you please, do as you want, and it's okay. But God called his people, the Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, called his people to repent and to return to him, Yahweh. The Lord, he says, your God. So in returning to God, we need to have that personal relationship with him where we call Yahweh, Jehovah, our God. The God of the Bible now becomes our God. This returning has this idea, the full idea of repentance. What does repentance mean? It means a turning from and a turning to. So he says in this statement, return, O Israel, to the Lord your God. For you have stumbled because of iniquity. And so in that statement, he's saying, return to the Lord from your sin. Turn from sin, turn to 
the Lord. That's the idea of true repentance. It's spoken of this way in the New Testament. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 1, verse 9, Paul commends believers who have began to trust in God, and he says this about them. They themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you, how you turned to God from idols. He says you turned to God from idols. There again, that repentance involves a turning to and a turning from. It is not, you have not repented if you turn to God and you're still fooling around in your sin. You're still involved in the sin because that is a, a, an idol that you have made above or equal with God. You know what? It's, it's not only that idols are made above God. God says he, he has no equal. You don't co-serve him. I'm going to serve you along with something else. You serve him and you serve him alone. You turn from anything else that's been in the place of God and you begin to serve God. Yahweh, Jehovah, the one and only God. This repentance includes a turning to the Lord. That means a turning to and a turning from. It includes confession. Notice what he says. Verse 2, take with you words. That's an interesting statement, isn't it? Take with you words. When you return, come with some words. Now, we would think, why is that insignificant? Why is that important? He says, I want you to, to confess. Repentance includes confession. Confession means agreeing with God about your sin. <laughs> Confessing means to tell the truth on yourself. <laughs> tell the truth on yourself. You ever had little kids, you know, when somebody does something wrong, they're quick to tell the truth on somebody else. Few will actually tell the truth on themselves. That's what confession is. Not daddy, so-and-so did this and so-and-so did that, but I did wrong. I have sinned. So he says, take with you words. And then he tells them what kind of words to say. Take. <laughs> take with you words and return to the Lord. Confession then is a part of repentance. Now we would say that, that why is that important? Are words important? Yes, words are. Jesus says the reason why our words are wrong is because our hearts are wrong. Words should be the reflection or the result or the fruit of our heart. And so if our heart is right, certainly our words should line up with that. And he then asked us to say those words. It's like saying, look, sign on the dotted line. Don't just tell me you're in agreement. It's, it's, it's like a man and a woman who, who are married coming back and, 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 and reigniting that flame and, that, and that, that union that they have, but they don't want to sign the paperwork. It's like couples today who want to live together but don't want the commitment of marriage. 
They don't want to say the words. They don't want to verbalize and make a commitment. That's what these words mean. And it's not just mere words, by the way, but it is words, and it is important, and it is significant. Have you committed yourself in your words to God? Will you say, God, you are my God. I serve you. I belong to you. I commit myself to you. Say it, he says in our repentance, to say it, to speak it, say. He says, come with you, uh, bring with you, take with you words. And this is what you say. He says, say to him, take away all iniquity. So in this confession, it is prepared words. It's not just something slapped together. It's, it's interesting in, in, in our day and age, we always have somebody um, in the news that has done something and they kind of got caught. Maybe it's somebody in a high position. And we have it in the sports world all the time. Uh, we have it in, in, in the polit uh, a political world as well, the business world. And so we want to hear what they have to say. When we listen closely, we find those words oftentimes are empty. And sometimes the words just sound too good to be true. And we realize words need to be backed up with some action, and we're going to see that as we go, go along. But he says you need to have words, prepared words, in agreement with God about your sin, not about your messed up situation. Don't blame it on somebody else or your circumstance. Blame, speak the truth about yourself and about your sin. So Israel needed to say Lord, take away our iniquity. He says, take away all iniquity. The word iniquity is there. It's important. People need to, as they repent, speak of their sin. They have wronged God. They have offended a holy God. Give you an example of confessions that aren't for real. I sort of messed up. <laughs> Lord, you know I ain't perfect. And everybody else has been involved in these kind of things. No, he says, speak words that talk about your sin. Take away all iniquity is what he says. We have some examples in the Bible. In Psalm 32, verse 5, the very familiar confession and notes what it says I acknowledged my sin to you I want you to turn there if you don't have it turn in your Bible Psalm 32 5 I acknowledged my sin to you David is speaking there of his sin his sin was obvious it was recorded in scripture but his personal confession it's significant and an example for each of us. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. Oftentimes, sin comes in bunches. <laughs> and one of the things that accompany our sin is this, this thought of covering it. We sin, and then we want to make a cover for it. Adam and Eve did that same thing in the garden, didn't they? And we find it accompanies much of our sin. But 
but um, when we see this true repentance by David, we, we see his attitude. I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. If you look at that verse, just one verse, how many times does he make mention of sin and it's personal, it's his? I acknowledge my sin, my sin to you. I did not cover my iniquity. Iniquity is another word for sin. I said, I will confess my transgression to the Lord. You forgave the iniquity of my sin. I see five times, and each one is identified personally with himself. He acknowledges he doesn't hide from it. Another verse that uh, gives us insight into what our confession should look like is in Proverbs 28, verse 13. Proverbs 28, 13. I hear a few pages turning. Must have electronic devices on the. That's okay too. But get there. Whichever way you want to use, just get there. Proverbs 28 13 says this Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. What it's saying there is that that's not true confession. And if it's not true confession, then it's not true repentance. And therefore, that sin is not forgiven. That sin still stands before the Lord. He says, but he who confesses and forsakes. He who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. I think one of the reasons why we don't often take words with our repentance is because we know we don't mean them. And we don't want to get caught in the double whammy, <laughs> the double sin of having done wrong and then lied to the Lord about wanting to do right. But God knows the heart, and if that sin isn't repented of, it's not turned from. It says, you will not find mercy. You will not prosper. As I counsel, as I talk with people, often people want to know, well, Pastor, what do I need to do? My situation is this. I was at the rescue mission yesterday and talking with men, and afterwards they come, and oftentimes they bring up their personal uh, life situation and ask advice about it. What should I do? He says, you need to stop covering your sin. We often cover our sin with attitudes, with words, with all type excuses. Um, he says, you're not going to prosper if you're doing that. Lay it bare. Speak it to the Lord and be plain about it. If you're confessing your sin and you can't be real clear about what it is you've done, you're not repenting. Ask God to open your eyes and let you see. Guess how he's going to do that? Usually through someone else. Talk to that person and say, what is it that I need to confess? What is it that I've done wrong? We have too many that are like children. Oh, I'm sorry. Hmm, hmm. Well, what are you sorry for? Well, what exactly did you do? I don't know, but I'm sorry. <laughs> That's not confession. That's not repentance. We need to identify. We looked at the, the 
the psalm, I acknowledge my sin. I identify it. God knows it. <laughs> He's very clear on it. Are we clear about it? And so this confession has to do uh, with, with acknowledging, telling the truth on ourselves. And it's the Holy Spirit that reveals that to us and brings us that attitude to really confess that sin. Go back to our text. It's also confession involves this plea for forgiveness. Plea for forgiveness. It's not good enough just to say what you've done wrong if you don't seek God's forgiveness in it. And that's what the thought that comes as we look in Hosea um, Say to him, take away our iniquity. In the, 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 the last part of verse 2, take away all iniquity and accept what is good. And we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. He says that we're going to pay with bulls. That bulls were used animals of sacrifice. It's interesting, there were, there were different types of animals that you could use to sacrifice, to offer a sacrifice for sin. A bull was like the big one. <laughs> it wasn't just like a little turtle dove for, for those who couldn't afford. This was buying the whole bull and offering it as a sacrifice. Notice what he says here. We, we, will, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. He's saying we're going to put action to our words. We will pay the vows of our lips. Our lips have made a vow, a promise, a commitment, and we're going to now act on that. We're going to do what we committed to doing. We didn't just speak empty words. We're going to follow through now and do and live out this repentance that we are, 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 are speaking before the Lord. That's important, isn't it? Not to just say it, but to live it. There's a couple of we will statements. It shows a commitment to righteousness. In fact, there's we will and we will not that, that are part of a true repentance or a true confession. We will, the first one we looked at, we will pay with bulls the vows of our lips. Words accompanied with action. He says we will not, a couple of we will not, and I've re rephrased it this way in verse 3. We will not rely on others apart from God. In verse 3 he says this, Assyria shall not save us. Israel, in going astray from the Lord, had sought these neighbor nations for their help instead of going to God. And now in their repentance, they said, we're going to stop doing that. We're going to stop going to the center to support us, we're coming to God for our support. That's what repentance looks like. I'm going to walk, I'm going to depend on God and his process and his people. I'm not going to depend on something else. You know, we have people, individuals who get in trouble financially and saying, Lord, I, I, I need to repent from that. But all the repenting they do is just to file bankruptcy. 
And all that says is, I'm not admitting no wrong. I just want a new slate. And what I often see with those kind of individuals, maybe a few years later, they go through the same thing again. Because they haven't learned and they haven't repented and they haven't changed their action for what they claim to be a, a, a confession and a repentance. And true repentance says, no, if, if, if I have, this is the wrong that I have done and now I am going to correct that by walking obediently to the Lord. I am not going to depend on someone else to get me out of a mess, I am going to trust the Lord and his process to do that. He says, we're not going to Assyria for help anymore. We're coming to the Lord and his process. Lord, you are able to help us, and that's where we come to. That's a part of true repentance. It's, it's a humbling. Saying, I'm actually going to live like I believe in God. I'm actually going to believe like I, I, I'm going to live like I believe that God is my helper. He's the one I need. Now, God may use other processes, but the fact is I'm dependent on God, and I'm going to show that in my walk and in my attitude. So there's a couple things they say we will not do. One is rely on others apart from God. Assyria shall not save us. The other thing they say, we will not ride on horses, verse 3. We will not ride on horses. In other words, we will not put faith in human strength or processes. A horse was, was a, a, a tool of, of an army to come and, and deliver a people. And it said, we're not looking for the strength of our army or the strength of ourselves to save us. We're dependent on the Lord. You know, in this process of idolatry, um, they, were, they were serving these idols for a purpose. They, they looked to get some benefit from these idols. They also looked to get some benefit from their connection with other people who serve these idols. And God is saying, cut it clean. Come away from that. Get out of that. Reminds me of our council people who were, were dealing with drugs and and they, they, they had some financial debt that they needed to pay. And they asked me, is it okay to, to take the loan from the drug dealer? Now, you might laugh at that, but it happens all the time. Why? So certainly that's not okay. Don't you think God is able to get you out? What do you think that drug dealer is going to do with that loan? He's going to bait you back in. He says, cut the tie. Cut the strings. We're not going to rely on someone else outside of God. We're not going to rely on some other process. Today, Christians so often are, are relying on government, government policies, government programs, instead of relying on God. Our repentance says, no, we're going to trust in God. We trust that he is the one that gives us life. He is the one that sustains us. So we're going to actually start living like that. Now, God may use a process through other people. He does that all the time because he owns all that. But when he does it, you're going to know it's him. God blessed this church that way. We didn't go out and, and, and you know, 
just certain things that just bother me. When churches sell things, and now the big thing is in churches, they don't want to sell things. They want to they sell advertisements. So fine, you run a program, and everybody has a little corner. They pay for that corner of that program, and you're going to raise money that way. Okay, fine. I get what you're doing. But how, what's wrong with, folks, let's pray for our offering. Give to the Lord so that we can sustain the Lord's work through the Lord's people. How about that first? How about doing that first? How about looking to the Lord's process of how he wants to supply our need instead of the world's process, gimmicks and tricks? But the problem is we don't trust it. But if we're going to repent and turn to the Lord and, and turn away from idols and turn away from those associated with idols, we need to repent and do what Israel said or, or what Hosea was suggesting that they would say to show repentance. We will not ride horses anymore. We're not going to Egypt to ask them for horses. Now, in our day, we will say we're not going to them to ask them for tanks, <laughs> to ask them for, air, for, for, for jets and airplanes and equipment to get us out of trouble. We're going to actually trust the Lord. How's that working out in your life? Who are you relying on to get you out of that, that little trouble that you're in? Are you sensitive to those commercials that say you can get this loan quick and easy and, and, and that's, that's the best way to do it? Are you going to, to, to you know, Potawatomi so you can win? Are you buying lottery tickets so you can get that money? Are, are you investing in all these kind of things? So hopefully something to, something's going to happen. What about simply trusting in the Lord? And asking him, what do you, Lord, want me to do to get out of the bind that I'm in? <laughs> Maybe he says, I want you to work. Why don't you get a job and actually work? I want you to stop ordering on Amazon every other day and save some of that money and actually pay off your debt. God said, I want you to start living like you actually trust in me and you want to do what I say. Now, the truth is, sometimes we get ourselves in situations that are quite involved, and the repentance needs to be quite involved as well. But the question is, are we repenting? Are we turning? Are we acknowledging our sin? Or are we just saying, Lord, I'm in a mess. Give me some money. I don't generally give to people like that. I, I don't think the Lord does either. He said, are you really wanting to get out of your mess the right way? Or are you just going to go right back into it after I get you free out of this? So he, he told, told them there's some things that they need to say we will not do. Another one there. We will say no more our God to the work of our hands. In other words, we will stop worshiping idols. Notice how they classify idols. They classify our God, but it's the work of their hands. They're saying they have called the work of their hands their God. We have a hard time in our, in our culture recognizing idols. The fact is, uh, one theologian says that our hearts are idol factories. 
We make idols all the time. We have idols right now in this day. Anything that we make equal to or above God in, in our view, in our attitude, uh, in, in our time or in our money, in our effort, and what we put towards it, it becomes an idol. It could be as simple as my truck outside. If it goes wrong, guess what? I stop everything to pay to get it fixed, including tithe. If that's the attitude, something's wrong. If that's the attitude, something is wrong. That has now become important to me, more important than my walk and obedience to the Lord. Something is wrong. So we have many idols. Some of our idols are living. They're people. There are kids. Our kids say, Mama, I need. Daddy, give me this. Instead of doing what we need to do, we just, that's the most important thing. I will shift and change everything. I'll shift all my, see our God, to, to God we say, Lord, I will change all my priorities for you. Who are you doing that for? Is your God. And it's now taking the place of God. And he said, in our repentance, we will say no more, our God, to the works of our hands. To our jobs, to the things that we seek to get, we will say no more, that's our God. We will stop living like that. So we're going to actually make a change. We're not just saying words. So he says things we will do and things we will not do. This is all part of a confession that has teeth. <laughs> the word of God says, say this. Bring these words of commitment that are true and then honor them with your actions. And then the last part of verse 3 is a part of our true confession and true repentance is an acknowledgement and acceptance of God's grace. The last part of verse 3, in you the orphan finds mercy. In that statement, that's an amazing statement, isn't it? He, he, it's an humble statement. It's saying the orphan, the one who has no mother or father, no one who loves and supports and provides for, this orphan, this humble, needful individual finds mercy in whose sight? In God's sight. That's the kind of God we serve. He takes those of us who've been rejected, those of us who've been put in terrible situations, and he's saying, you can rely on no one else, but you can rely on me because I am Jehovah God who is merciful to those in need. To you, in you, the orphan finds mercy. So it says part of our confession and our repentance is to humble ourselves before God, recognizing his goodness. Why is it that we don't repent and turn to God? Are we saying, God, I, I don't trust you to really forgive me and to restore me and to help me? He says, no, recognize that this is the God who reaches out to those who have humbled themselves and are in need and come to him in that need. Part of our problem, I know I, I have that issue, is that I just don't want to say I need something. I just don't want to say it. I'm going to figure it out myself. 
My car could be broken down on the side of the road. A guy pulled over. Hey, you need something? No, man, I got it. I got it. What you going to do? I don't know what I'm going to do. I might push this car all the way across the highway, but I got it. Man, that ain't smart. I'm right here ready to help you. That's what God is saying to us. I've come alongside you to help. You need to acknowledge your need and recognize I'm the gracious one who meets that need. In you, orphans find mercy. What a beautiful statement. God is saying to his people, recognize that you're in need. Recognize I'm sufficient and I'm gracious. And I will meet that need. And then act like you actually believe that. Walk in that. Trust me to be who I am. Test me. Brian preached a great message in, in uh, the Walking Rescue Mission on Psalm 34. Taste and see that the Lord is good. Practice it. Try it. Watch him be the God who gives mercy to those who are in great need. In you, the orphan finds mercy. The problem with that is we don't want to be orphans. <laughs> we don't want to be in need of mercy, but in fact, we really are. We're in desperate need, and God just wants us to acknowledge that. Look at the Lord's response in the next few verses, verses 4 through 7. The Lord responds to his repentant people graciously. The Lord responds to his repentant people graciously. We just left verses where we see, I will and I will not. So it's the declaration of the repentant sinner who says, I'm coming to you, I'm returning to you, Lord, and here's my attitude. I, I, I'm going to trust you, I'm going to stop trusting in anything else outside of you, and I'm going to stop going through that process. And then the Lord responds. Now he says, I will. God declares what he's going to do in response to those who repent and turn to him. What does he say? couple things. First of all, in verse 4, I will heal. I will heal their apostasy. apostasy. That reminds us that oftentimes the Bible views sin as a sickness and a disease. That shouldn't trouble us. He didn't say it is. It's viewed like one. In other words, it's a sickness and a disease that only God can remedy. It's a sickness and disease that only God can remedy. I will heal your apostasy. Apostasy is turning away from God. God can heal that, and he declares that he will heal it. So he sees sin, and one picture of sin is, yes, it's, it's a disease. I know we fight that, that uh, model when we see it uh, uh, in, in, in drug and alcohol addiction because they, also want, they often want to say that uh, drug addiction is a disease. And I say, no, it's not a disease. It's like a disease. There's a great difference in that because they want to say it's a disease that is not your fault, you know, it's like a cold you just caught. It jumped on you from nowhere, and, and now you're just under the, under the, 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 the uh, you're suffering from it. You say it's like a disease because if it goes untreated, it's going to destroy you. So it has many uh, qualities like a disease, but there's some ways that you can take that too far. But he says it's like a disease that only God has the remedy to. 
and what he promises to do, what he declares for his people, is that I will heal. Come to me. I will heal. Not someone else. I will heal. Today we go to the doctor, we go to the psychiatrist, we go to the psychologist, we go to the counselor, we go to everybody but God. God says, I will heal their apostasy. Secondly, he says, I will love. I will love. Verse 4, I will love them freely. It's not that he didn't love them before, but he's saying, I will love them in such a way that I have removed my judgment from them. Look at the next phrase. I will love them freely, for my anger has turned from them. He will love them in a way because now he has removed his judgment from them. The judgment is like a big hammer hanging over their head. He says, I took my arm away. <laughs> you have to worry about You have to be paranoid about the hammer falling down on you. That's why Christians have such peace. We're not paranoid people because we have a God who has removed his judgment for us because, from us because we've been repentant and we've turned to him. The one who's paranoid is probably not repentant. And wondering why this stuff is happening. Seems to be coming out of nowhere. Well, there's a reason for it. You need to come to God and seek his solution, the one only he can provide. He says, I will love you. He says, I will forgive you. He states that in a different way, verse 4. My anger has turned from them. In other words, judgment is not there. He's withheld his judgment. Why? Not just because he felt like it, because he's extended forgiveness to them. He has forgiven them. Forgiveness is always based on something. Forgiveness is paid by the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. God required that forgiveness, forgiveness have a payment. He didn't just say, okay, if you sinned, um, you know, I'm going to declare a time when all sin will be excused. Act like it never happened. God doesn't do that. He says, no, I don't excuse sin. I forgive sin or I judge sin one or the other. If God excused sin, he would not be a righteous God. You know how it is. If you got a boss on the job and somebody has committed offense and they got off on it, you commit the same offense and you get fired. You say, wait, something ain't right here. In fact, I guarantee you probably go to court with that. How come I got fired and so-and-so? What, 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 was, what was it about so-and-so that they didn't get the same treatment as me? What we say in God's account is God has paid for sin for those who trust in him, and therefore he forgives them by the blood of Jesus Christ. It is paid for, not just swept under the rug, so to speak. It is paid for. So he removes his judgment from me and you. Proverbs, excuse me, Romans 8 says there is now no judgment, no condemnation to those who, to everybody? No. To those who are in Christ. To those who are in Christ. He's taken his judgment away. He says, I will forgive them. And then he says, verse 5, I will be like the dew. I will be like the dew. 
to Israel. What is he saying there? It's a lot of imagery that follows that has to do with planting and nourishing and growth and fruitfulness. And it, it all based on this. Something has to be watered. In Psalm 1, it says this, this righteous man will be like a tree planted, what? By the rivers of water. He has a continual water source. I don't do that good at, 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 at uh, uh, planting and keeping my grass. But one thing I do know, if it don't get no water, you're in trouble. <laughs> you're in trouble. You got to find some water some kind of way. I told you the story about there was one, one section that I was trying to grow some plants and grow some flowers. And I found out it was too close to the edge of my house. And the, the roof line did not allow the rain to drip in that part. Nothing would grow there. Guess what I got there now? A sandbox. <laughs> Appropriate place for a sandbox. See, I'm getting smart. I ain't trying to, ain't trying to put any, any, anything that should grow because it's not watered there. God says, I will be like the dew to my repentant people. I will be the one who supplies them with the needful water that they need. God says he wants to bless his people, but he does that to those who are repentant. I will be like the dew, he says. Then he goes into what the impact, what's going to happen to those who are repentant to whom he responds to. What does it look like to them? Verse 5, we have these he statements. He shall become this or he shall be this. A number of them just point out, verse 5, I will be like the dew. He shall blossom like the lily. He shall blossom. Blossom is one. Another one in verse 5, he shall take root. He shall take root. Verse 5, his shoots shall spread out. This is a picture of fruitfulness, of growth. Of a, of a plant that is living, that is nourished, that is beginning to be healthy and beginning to grow. And we see the impact of it. Verse 6, he talks about his beauty. His beauty shall be like the olive. His fragrance like Lebanon. Now the Lebanon, look, look at Lebanon is mentioned two times. In verse 5, he shall take root like the trees of Lebanon. Uh, other times in the Bible, there's a term that goes along with the trees. It's usually talking about the cedars of Lebanon. All throughout the Bible, cedars of Lebanon are seen as something that is majestic. It is something, it's a tree that is huge, that is strong, that is healthy, that is, is majestic in, in its view. You know, today we use cedar, don't we? You want to get a premium closet, what kind of wood would you put in it? Cedar wood. Why is that? Because it smells so good. Cedar keeps that pleasant scent. It's a natural scent. When you cut cedar and when you line your closet with cedar, you smell that cedar. So when you, when you walk into where you store your clothes, it's going to have that fragrance. And he mentions that in verse 6. He says, they shall, his beauty shall be like the olive, his fragrance like Lebanon. And what he has in mind, the cedars of Lebanon. God begins to bless us where we look good. God begins to bless us where we even smell good. 
What is he talking about? Is he talking about the, the perfume or deodorant that we have on our bodies? No, he's talking about your life becomes, you become like a fragrant, beautiful, pleasant aroma to those around you. People look at you like they know. They know God's blessing is on you. Those who have repented and God is, is working in their life, it's not to say, now, I, I'm not like those, those, uh, uh, those name it, claim it, and, 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 and promises, but God does make some promises. It's not that he's going to make you rich, but what he says here is that your life is going to be touched and influenced by God, and people will know it. They are around you. I've had people say to me, they, they didn't even know me. They said something about you. I said, yeah, I know it. You figured it out yet? <laughs> I'm not bragging on me. I'm bragging on the Lord. When he gets involved, you're going to smell good. You're going to look good. You're going to have something about your life. It's an intrinsic value when God begins to live within you that other people notice. It's a testimony. Some people say it's just a smile. And, and you know you don't smile all the time because you're going through the same kind of rough times that they're going through. But what happens is you have a different fragrance in your life. you like that cedar. The more you cut, the more you smell. <laughs> it's a pleasant aroma that's always about you. When you're going through trials, it comes out because it's you. It's what God has done. It's what he's working his grace in your life and it shows in everything that you do. When God's people are repented and turning to him, he puts his stamp on them. You never hug somebody. You go home, you recognize their cologne or their perfume, don't you? They don't smell it anymore because it's just a part of them. God says, when you have been fragranced by him, when you've been touched by him, you have his smell on you everywhere you go. Other people recognize it. They shall return, verse 7, and dwell beneath my shadow. Another day. It's a consequence of, of a life that's committed to the Lord. I, I've done things that people say, man, you must be living right. <laughs> You must be living right. You know what they say in it? They, say, they see God's hand on you in some kind of way. Now, sometimes they joke, but they're not really joking. They say, I see God's work. I see God's blessing. It's all over you. Doesn't mean you're perfect, but it means you, you've been close to God. <laughs> His fragrance is on you. And he says it this way, they shall return and shall dwell beneath my shadow. That's a picture of protection. It's a picture of protection. To be in somebody's shadow, you got to be pretty close to them, don't you? It's coming to that warm time of the year where we look for shadows. In my backyard, I try to make shadows. <laughs> Place shade where you can find comfort. He says, they shall be underneath my shadow. God says he's going to protect his people. They don't have to look for foreign help anymore for their protection. They should be looking to the Lord. How about you? How about you? Who are you looking to for protection? Who are you counting on? Are you trusting in the Lord? He gives us a beautiful picture. 
Then in verse 8 and 9, he reminds his people. Three things I want to mention here. He reminds them people, he reminds his people, his repentant people. And it's good for us to be reminded of this. He reminds them of his character. Verse 8. Oh, Ephraim, what have I to do with idols? He reminds them of his character. And what about his character here? His character is in contrast to the false, dead idols that they had come to worship. He says, what have I to do with idols? Compare me to an idol is what he's saying. And he says, it is I who answer and look after you. Look at those two words. I answer. In other words, I'm alive. You can pray to those other false gods and false idols and stuff you carve with your hands and think it's good because you done laid some gold over it. But do they answer you? When you pray to them, do they speak back to you? He says, it is I who answer. He reminds his people of his character. His character is in contrast to any other uh, 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 God with the little g that they would serve. It's I who answer and look after you. He reminds of his loving care for them. It is I who answer and look after you. In the contrast to idols, we read a verse earlier. I want to read it again. 1 Thessalonians 1, 9. It's how you turn to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Jehovah Yahweh is the living and true God. In contrast to idols who had no life at all and they were false God. In other words, they could not help people at all. They had no concern for people. I like watching commercials. There's a commercial that comes on. I think it's, uh, I don't even know the name of the insurance company, but it has uh, uh, two basketball players from uh, Houston, uh, from the Houston Rockets on it. And uh, um, there is an insurance, there's an insurance uh, uh, agent that's coming up to their home, but he's a robot. And they have their own insurance agents say, you know, these other insurance companies are, are trying to send these robots to take our places and compete with us. He says this, but they have no compassion. And then this robot says, I have compassion. How are you fine fellows? What can I do for you? And then he starts, I have compassion. And he starts crying. And his, his eyes start cocking out this way. Water starts squirting all over the place. And the two ball players are like, what, what's, wrong? what's wrong with him? See, he, he's, he, he's a, a robot trying to act like he's got human compassion. But God is saying that about these idols. He's saying, they're not real and they don't care for you. I am living and I'm a true God. I care for you. The Bible says that the very hair on your head is numbered. Just because you can't see God doesn't mean he's not there. It doesn't mean he doesn't care. 
That's why we serve him by faith. You're going through something right now that you need to understand that God cares, that God is concerned, and that God is able to act and work in your life. He's saying, what have I to do with idols? Why would you substitute someone else or something else for me? So he reminds them of his character. It reminds them of his care for them. And it reminds them of their dependence on him at the end of verse 8. I am like an evergreen cypress. A lot of tree references, isn't it? <laughs> Trees are good things. <laughs> but then he reminds them why he uses this tree reference. He says this, from me comes your fruit. From me comes your fruit fruit. Reminds me of a passage in John 15, 5. You know that great passage where Jesus says, I am the vine. He says this, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. From me comes your fruit, he says in Hosea. From me comes your fruit. He reminds them that apart from him, they die. They don't have life. They cannot continue. They won't flourish. They won't blossom. They won't grow. Their roots won't shoot out. And all the other imagery that we just saw in this verse, the verses before, apart from God, they don't have that. He's saying to God, God's saying to his people today, you are my people. Stay connected to me. I need to abide in you. You need to abide in me. Because apart from me, you're dead. You have no life. He reminds them, he's saying, of their dependence on him. It's, it's, it's weird because they were going to these false gods because, you know, they, they wanted to pray for rain. You know, we saw these images of, of these natives people dancing around and hollering and singing and cutting themselves so that the rain gods would pour out rain at the time they needed rain, right? God says, I'm the dew. I'm the water to your field. I'm the one who makes things grow, literally, and in your life figuratively as well. I'm the one who you depend on. Trust me. Return to me. Repent. Confess. And then he ends it with this statement. Verse 9. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. This, this verse to me sounds like a psalm or a proverb. Whoever is wise, let him understand these things. Whoever is discerning, let him know them. And then he gives us to this thing. I think it really wraps up all of Hosea. For the ways of the Lord are right. Children's Sunday school group was singing a song this morning. And part of the words of the song, he is perfect in all his ways. That's what this verse says. The ways of the Lord are right. I'll make note that he says the ways, because we're going to talk about this tonight. But there's two things that Hosea wrestles with and, and, and kind of juggles that are hard to understand. The ways of the Lord. Two things that we see in Hosea to summarize. I'm going to give you this. I'm going to ask you for it tonight as well. So I'll see if you're paying attention. 
One is we see strongly the judgment of God. You can't miss that in Hosea. He's going to judge his people because of sin. But what else, what else you see strongly is that this God loves his people and is willing to be united to a sinful people who have disrespected him and have turned against him. So you see his love and his judgment on equal hands. These are the ways of the Lord. And what's important in Hosea he's bringing to us is that you need to understand both of those things about God if you're going to live right. You need to understand that he loves you, but if you turn from him, there's judgment standing outside your door. You need to understand that this judgment stands, but if you repent, God is waiting lovingly to bring you in. Too many times we minimize one and emphasize the other, and we have a false view of God. We'll talk about that more tonight. But he says this, know this, discern this, understand this. The ways of the Lord are right. In other words, they are perfect. God is perfect in his judgment as well as perfect in his love. God is perfect in his judgment, as well as perfect in his love. The upright walk in them. If you have discerned anything, you've decided to walk in God's ways, to turn from sin and to turn to God. But he leads us with a solemn reality that we ought not belittle and ought not to forget. Transgressors stumble in them. People want to take God's word as simply a positive message. They understand half of it. Transgressors stumble in them. If you haven't and if you aren't turning from your sin, you are stumbling into God's judgment. It's an awesome picture. God is real when he spoke to Israel. He says, you're on a brink of destruction. I love you and I don't want to see you go through that. But you're on a brink of destruction. Return to me or be destroyed. Father, we thank you for your word today. We pray that our hearts would take seriously your concern, your promise, and your declaration of judgment against sin in our lives. If you touch a heart today, we pray, Lord, that they would respond with the I wills and I will not in the right way. Pray this in Jesus' name.